guys, my name is Josephine and I just want to welcome to A Step Back in Time. So today we're going to look at different people and professions who work really hard to protect our history, our culture and just our general heritage so that we can know more about how the world worked in the past and to know more about the people who just kind of generally came before us. And while there are lots of people who do this every day in our normal everyday, everyday lives, such as our parents, grandparents and even our teachers there are also people whose career it is to do this for everyone on the earth so we'll take a look at two of these in particular to get a better idea of the amount of work that goes into it and then in the next episode we'll look at two more so the important thing to know at the start is that while they're all individual jobs they do all have some crossover and may need to help each other out to get all the information so today we're going to look at paleontologists and archaeologists and we're going to look at these in the order that they work. So first up it is paleontologists. So scientists reckon that the earth was formed about six billion years ago and when it happened the earth looked completely different to what it does today. There were no people and there was only plant life and animal life at the time, something that's called flora and fauna now. But there was no animals like today, so we didn't have cats and dogs running around and th there was no pets or anything like that. But there were dinosaurs everywhere. They lived on the ground and they flew through the skies. Some ate meat and they were called carnivores. Some ate plants only and they were called herbivores, kind of like vegetarians. And then some ate a combination of meat and plants and were called omnivores. So how do we know this? Well, scientists today can study the remains to see what type of food they might have eaten, but we wouldn't have these remains without paleontologists and the work that they do. So really, paleontologists find these skeletons and bones and remains in something that we call fossils. So a fossil is usually found really deep in the ground when paleontologists are excavating, which means that they're digging up a big site, or sometimes they even just wash up on beaches. So what they look like is a little stone with the shape of the animals or plants in them. So they were formed billions of years ago when the ground was still forming. So really what it would have looked like at the time on the surface was a lot of little stones. And then as these creatures or plants died, the rains, so the, the dead leaves or the bones of the creatures would just fall in amongst the stones and they'd get jammed there. And then as time passed and the ground built up more and more, the pressure being put on from above would squish all these stones together and it would basically just squeeze in the remains that were left, which would just leave the imprint or the shape on the stone. So over time, then some of these layers can become visible again through construction, through building massive sites or even just some of the layers that ended up going underwater that are now part of the sea or the ocean. They might be um, revealed by erosion caused from the water. So then what happens is that they wash up on beaches. But unfortunately, we don't always really know exactly where these things come from. So while we can get an idea of things that are washing up on beaches, and we can get an idea of the plants or the creatures that were alive, we don't actually know where they might have been. So another thing to just mention, and I suppose to clear up, is that fossils only contain the shape of the object sometimes 
as it might have either decayed over the years, which means it basically kind of disintegrated and disappeared, or the the creature or the object might have actually just what we call calcified. So what that means is that all of the organic or living matter in it might have been absorbed into the stone and then the stone takes on the shape of the fossil and the fossil becomes the stone. So really it's just like one big stone in the shape of it. So paleontologists only study these as their particular set of skills and a particular set of knowledge. And we know lots about humans, er, humans' early ancestors and dinosaurs and the types of weather events that happened only because of them. We know about volcanoes erupting from paleontologists working with people who study rocks, who are called geologists, and how the volcanoes affected life and how it affected sea life, animal life, and even anything that flew through the skies at the time. And we know that early humans evolved at different rates because of paleontologists and geologists and how they studied how the earthquakes caused the world to divide up. So today the world is made up of many different countries, islands, pieces of land that have broken off from the mainland over the years. But in the very beginning, back in the time of dinosaurs and the time of the earth forming, there was just one country. And what, the, what scientists are calling it now is Pangaea. So geologists have studied different geological events and different weather events to see what caused Pangaea to break up and become the seven continents that we know today. And basically then what happens is that paleontologists began to study the human evolution. So we descend from a primate lineage, which is basically apes and monkeys as they're called but really we don't know how we formed or how we started so what paleontologists have done with the help of archaeologists and we'll talk about that in a second is that they're able to say that the different rates of evolution happened because of different things so we're going to look at that again in a little bit more detail in another episode because human evolution is really important and then we can look at the guy who discovered human evolution for the first time Next, we're going to look at archaeologists, and these are people who excavate big areas of land in order to discover more about the past. So, really, there's land archaeologists, which would be the most common, and then there's marine archaeologists who look and excavate underwater, and then they try and find the wreckages, and they look at bits of land that were reclaimed by the sea. But for the purposes of today's episode, we're just going to look at land archaeologists. While paleontologists usually look at smaller areas and usually only when something is found, archaeologists generally work with bigger sites. They can be for research, which is just to learn more about a particular thing for a particular reason, or they can be to get areas ready for building and construction. And normally it's roadworks really that archaeologists get called in to do big sites for these days. And that's called commercial archaeology. And that's generally because it's now law here in Ireland and in most other countries that an archaeologist has to come in and assess an area before any um, any work is done. Like paleontologists, archaeologists are a type of scientist and really they're kind of a detective all wrapped up into one. They're digging the ground to get a deeper understanding of life and how it has come to be what it is today but they're also trying to have a look for clues and figure out 
the puzzle that all of these clues form. And then these clues, as we're calling them, can come in many different formats. So they can be artifacts, which are objects found on a site. They can even be the buildings left behind by people, and they can even be written documents. So each item that is found on sites is always part of a bigger picture, no matter what size it is, whether it be a small little knife or if it's the massive building or a castle. And it's important for archaeologists to get as much information from a site as possible so that they can piece together all the clues and put together the story that we're being told. Not only are they using physical remains, but they're also using plant remains to study what the environment was like, what the site was like, and what might have been carried out there. So this is a lot more accurate than the work that can be done by paleontologists, because the sites the archaeologists study are a lot more recent, and that means that there's a lot more scientific evidence been left behind. So there might still be some nutrients and chemicals left in the ground so that when we study the soil we're able to get a really clear picture of what might have been there so we can figure out what flowers were at a site even what type of wood might have been used to build a fence that's been gone for thousands of years so a natural question then is what tools do archaeologists use on site um so we'll look at that a little bit and it mightn't be exactly what you expect so obviously the most popular thing that we associate with the archaeologists is a trowel so that's just a little thing you can use it in the garden and um, it's just used for general work such as cleaning off a little small area for a photograph so it can be documented or it might be for excavating small little features so there's stake holes that would be left behind by a small little fence and then there's post holes that would be left behind by bigger structures so how we can see these on the ground is that they're, they're usually circular and then they're a little bit different in colour to the rest of the soil because they might still have evidence of the decayed wood or it might just be a little bit looser soil that was used to backfill or fill up the hole left behind after a fence was taken down. But we mightn't actually know for definite that that was a fence until we can see the bigger picture and we can see shapes coming up and the, the outline of structures and buildings. So that's what I'm saying a minute ago about it's really important to look at the bigger picture and piece together all the clues and be a detective about it all. Okay, so then obviously a trowel couldn't be used on a bigger feature like a ditch or a burnt mound, which would be left over from a cooking pit. So when it comes to these then, it's really important that we photograph everything. But I suppose the main thing is that there is no way you could dig one with a trowel. So for the most of it, you'd be using big mattocks, which are like big picks to basically mash up the ground and shovels and wheelbarrows. And they'd be your three main tools for digging these kind of features. But then if you were to find an artifact within it, you'd swap back to your trowel and you'd be a lot more gentle and easier with it. So that begs the question then is, what do we do when we come across something that's a little bit more fragile or easily broken? So basically, if we're removing something like wood, so wood, when it's been preserved in the ground, it can be preserved in a bog or anything like that where oxygen can't get to it to break it down. It can be very, very delicate and very difficult to excavate. So what we need to do there is basically use our own hands. So your fingers are much more delicate than anything 
else you could use because we'd be very careful outlining the edges before we lift up an object and you'd be basically it's the best way to avoid breaking or scratching something so something like a trowel or toothpicks anything like that would always be at risk of damaging it and scratching it so we want to avoid that and then other times then an unused toothbrush might be best to use if you're excavating something delicate in an area of dry soil so be to just clear it up for a photograph then you often see people using lollipop sticks on sites plastic sticks can also be used but overall really i suppose the most important thing to realize there is that there's a lot of different tools that can be used and when something in particular is needed for a special or fragile object archaeologists really just use their imagination to find the appropriate tool because we don't want to screw it up we don't want to damage anything and we want to preserve it but then there's some sites that are just way too important for us to dig so there are sites like Newgrange and Knocknery that are just too important to our national heritage and even to just the local people around it they're sites that have stood the test of time and they've been there for thousands of years and so it's up to archaeologists and the National Museum to make sure that these sites are protected and preserved. So that means kept the way they are for as long as we can without doing any damage to them. So to do this then and to get a better understanding of what might be inside them, archaeologists study and excavate similar monuments. So it that gives us a better understanding of what might be inside them, what might be underneath them. Is there anything at all? So Newgrange has had some excavations done and we might look at that um, a little bit later on in another episode because I love Newgrange. But it's never been fully excavated in that it's never been dug up or taken apart. So to avoid that and to to avoid the destruction of the monuments, we do want to keep them as they are so that we have these national monuments that we can still honour and respect. So one final thing then is to just look at what overlaps there are between paleontologists and archaeologists even though we've kind of touched on a few already so one of them is human evolution and the impact really that humans had on the land and areas around them so we'll definitely discuss this later on as there's so much to cover we just couldn't get it through we couldn't get through it all here but basically what both professions are interested in is looking at how people started to communicate. So that started off by rock paintings, cave paintings, carvings, all sorts of things like that. And we can see that in the really early days, where before humans kind of really understood how to communicate with each other, we can see paintings of hunts and how they used to go hunt for their dinner and how it was a communal thing. So what we can look at then, but where the overlap comes is how that progressed from these really primitive drawings, these really early basic drawings on rock walls and cave walls up to today where we have amazing artists and we write as normal and everyone learns to read and write at some stage, but that wasn't always the way. So it's a really interesting thing to look at that that side of things. Then we can also look at how weapons were created for hunting and how people eventually began to settle into areas instead of moving around the land. 
So when they started to settle first, what they did was they stopped moving around massive areas and they pick a small area and move with the seasons according to their food supplies. So depending on the animals that might have been around and the different things that they needed for winter versus summer and the different resources that they needed. The next stage of human settlement was when they completely stopped moving around and they started to build these they're not towns as we know them, but like small little villages. They, their tribe would have stopped in one area of land. And that's when we see farming. And they started to reuse the land and they started to grow their own crops. And they started to keep animals so that they could get milk and a continuous supply of food. So we'll cover all that another day because, as I said, there's so much of it and there's so much interesting aspects that we want to look at them all properly. So I think we'll leave it there for the moment. Um, as I said, join us next time where we'll look at two more professions. So we're going to look at historians and anthropologists and we're going to see what they do to kind of help us know more about our culture as well as our past. And Swan say thanks for listening and we'll see you all next time. Bye.